Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Almost every single cell of your body is packed with more than two metres of DNA containing your genes. But not only does it have to be packed up to fit in there, it also has to be organised and read. People used to think that's just an issue of space and you've got to get it in the space and you just squish it down. Now we realise actually it's how you do that squishing that helps to control whether a gene is able to be activated and read. Plus, how genetic variations are linked to cancer risk, analysing dinosaur DNA and an adventurous gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for April 2013 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This year is the 60th anniversary of the discovery of the structure of DNA by James Watson, Francis Crick and Maurice Wilkins, aided by Rosalind Franklin. We're all familiar with images of the DNA double helix from school textbooks, newspapers and even company logos. But the reality is a lot more complicated, as more than two metres of this elegant twisted ladder has to be squished into the nucleus of each one of our cells, and then it has to be organised, copied and used. To find out more about how our cells achieve this incredible feat of packing, I spoke to Professor Wendy Bickmore from the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh. We used to know what a gene was. We could identify it from the sequence of bases in the DNA because they obviously coded for proteins. And so we could see the start of a gene, which we call the gene promoter, and then the bit of the DNA that codes for the protein. And so we could say, well, the gene starts here and it ends here. But now what we realise all of a sudden is actually that isn't all that the gene comprises. A gene needs that core bit of sequence that goes for the protein and the promoter that's going to drive the transcription of that bit of DNA into RNA. But it also needs an increasingly complex surrounding region of the genome to help control when and where and how strongly that gene is expressed in development. Because obviously we have somewhere between twenty and 30,000 genes. They're not just on all the time in all our cells. No, I think one of the maybe disappointing things from the sequencing of the human genome was that actually we didn't have very many more genes than a worm has. And I guess, guess we felt affronted by that. We thought we were a bit more complicated. Uh, so the realisation since that time has actually been it, it's, it's not how many genes you've got, but what you do with them, how you control them. Not what you've got, it's what you do with it that Absolutely, counts. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so if we think about these, these 30,000 genes scattered through... Um, the, the millions and millions of base pairs of DNA that we have, that it adds up in every cell of our body to about two metres of DNA. How is that organised? How do you compress all that into a, the nucleus of a single cell and then start to switch genes on and off in the right time and the right place? 
we actually think the two problems are actually intimately connected. So if you think about the two metres of your DNA that's going to fit inside the cell nucleus, which is about probably about, on average, 10 millionths of one metre in diameter, that's a kind of a big packaging problem. And it's about a th- more than a thousand-fold of condensation of the, of the DNA sequence you've got to do. And people used to think, well, that's just an issue of space, and you've got to get it in the space, and you just squish it down. Now we realise, actually, it's how you do that squishing and folding that helps to control whether a gene is able to be uh, activated and read in a particular cell type but not in another one. So I think if you think of the... you know, People make the analogy of the human genome as a book, uh, an encyclopedia of instructions on how to make uh, an organism. Well, you can't read the page of instructions when the book's closed. The, page has got, the book's got to be open to the right chapter and the right page to actually read the recipe for that particular gene, a particular cell type. So actually opening and closing down regions of the genome in terms of the way the string is folded up is actually intricately tied into whether a gene gets switched on or switched off. To use that string analogy that you just mentioned, if you have a, a gene and then you have the enhancers that kind of tell the gene mm. be on, be off, how far away from the actual gene themselves can they be? In terms of the actual DNA sequence themselves, we know that the controlling elements, what we call the enhancers, can be one to two million base pairs away from the gene, which is an extraordinarily long length in terms of just a DNA sequence. But in terms of real space inside the cells, what does that mean? So that's a question that really interests me. And we think that... Uh, an enhancer can act upon a gene as long as it's within about um, half a micron distance. So a half a millionth of a metre. So it's, it's got to be kind of close enough to, to get a sniff at the, at the gene and turn it on. Well, that, that's one model of how enhancers work. Do the, does the enhancer, the piece of DNA that is the enhanced element, does it actually have to come over and touch the gene and switch it on in some magic way, communicate with it directly? Or... Is it some other mechanism that doesn't really require the two bits in DNA to directly talk to each other? Maybe the, I, I prefer perhaps the model where they talk to each other indirectly by sharing proteins. So there's kind of just a, a lump of stuff and they're all part of this, this complex and yes. that's how the information gets yes. transferred. Or they, they both hang out in the same part of the cell nucleus where there's a high concentrations of goodies to, to turn genes on. Another aspect of your work that always interested me is that in, our, in all our cells we have 23 pairs of chromosomes, that's 46 lengths of DNA string. Yeah. How are they organised? Are they just all mixed up, like you know, 46 bits of string in a bundle, or, or do the different chromosomes hang out in different places? Yes, yeah, so our, our genome's not a plate of spaghetti. If we take the pasta analogy a bit further, it's probably a bit more like nohi. So each individual chromosome occupies its own space in the nucleus, which we call a chromosome territory. We can see that because one of the great things about the human genome is because it's so, so complicated and large, we can actually see it with a light microscope and we can use fluorescent tools to actually see individual genes and individual chromosomes. So we can paint chromosomes in different colours. So we can see that the chromosome territory for chromosome 18, which we might paint in red, is in a very different and distinct place from the chromosome territory for chromosome number 19, which we might paint in green. So we can kind of do colour by numbers of the human genome. And these pictures are are very beautiful, but they're also, at least some of them, are are very static. What do we know now about how our our DNA is moving around in in the nucleus, in the nucleus of our cells, during normal life? So if we step back and look at the chromosome territory that we just talked about, they're quite static. 
So a chromosome is not able to move, say, from one side of the nucleus to the other side of a cell nucleus within the lifetime of that cell. But an individual gene within that chromosome territory might be able to pop in and outside of the chromosome territory. So we can actually see that happening in living cells. So individual genes are pretty mobile, but again, constrained. I think we think of it as a kind of dog on a leash. So it can run around at will, but only so far, right? You're tied to the lamppost, so you can't go to, you can't go to the other side of the road. And is this kind of tied into how they might be interacting with these enhancers, these switches as well? Absolutely. So if we, if we watch um, a gene moving in a living cell, it's able to freely move. The dog on the leash can move over the space of about a half micron, which is exactly the distance in the nucleus that an enhancer can work on a gene. So for an enhancer to be able to, to contact a gene, it's got to be on a leash that's long enough to allow it to kind of wander over that nuclear space and find it. Where do you think this kind of research is going to go next? What are the real questions that, that you want to try and get a handle on? I'm, I'm interested in both the basic mechanism of how something that's a million base pairs away can communicate to a particular gene at the right time and place in development. So what are the protein factors involved? Does it really involve the chromosome folding over and touching? But I'm also interested in, in how that, this plays out in human genetic variation. So a lot of the differences between us are in the bits of our DNA that don't code for protein sequence, so they're in the non-coding bit, which we now know is full of this regulatory enhancer um, DNA. So how do these very subtle changes in our DNA sequence between individuals um, affect the way we look, our risk factors for various diseases, um, how high we are, for example, the colour of our eyes? Or even things like how we behave. Uh, And, of course, behaviour as well. I mean, the the brain is is a... biological organ, uh, no reason, and controlled by gene expression, so no reason to think that behavior, some behavioural traits are also going to be due to single changes in these enhancer elements. And what, what are you really excited about that, that seems to be just coming into focus now? I, I'm really excited by technology developments, actually. They've really opened um, our horizons. We, we were used to be constrained, kind of looking at one gene at a time, doing very small-scale experiments. Now we can scan across whole genomes between multiple individuals in different types of cells and really bring a much more comprehensive view of the genome. That was Professor Wendy Bickmore from the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh. Coming up later, we'll be taking a closer look at how DNA does the twist in our cells. But now it's time to take a look forward to the upcoming Genetic Society Spring Meeting, which is focusing on genomics for health and society. Scientists from around the world will be looking at the potential benefits of the genetics revolution, but also exploring what this explosion of information and technology might mean for our society. To get a taste of what we might expect, I spoke to one of the speakers at the meeting, Mark Henderson. He's head of communications at the Wellcome Trust and author of the books The Geek Manifesto and 50 Genetics Ideas You Really Need to Know. I think we're at a really interesting point. It's now uh, 10 years since the uh, publication of the sort of final version of the uh, human genome sequence. In the 10 years since then, we have, in, in certain areas of medicine particularly, really progressed our understanding 
uh, to the point that uh, genetics and genomics is no longer just about research, it's actually about treating patients. I think there are three uh, particular areas where that's already having a real uh, impact. One of them is, is rare disease. That's uh, uh, children born with uh, syndromes, often causing mental retardation, uh, that kind of thing, that are really difficult to diagnose. What is increasingly happening is that uh, it's becoming possible to diagnose at least some of those children using uh, genome sequencing. The second area is infectious disease. That's actually uh, sequencing bugs rather than people. And uh, using that, it's now possible to, uh, for example, uh, track down the precise uh, origin of an outbreak of MRSA, the hospital superbug, in a hospital ward. And the third area is cancer, where uh, cancer is a disease of the genes. It's a disease that, that happens when genetic mutations accumulate. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, it's been possible to develop some targeted medicines that actually uh, attack the specific mutations that go wrong in cancer. Where we are, I think, is uh, with those areas and, and a couple more, we're, we're now at a point where uh, genomics is not a technology of the future, it's a medical technology of now. The big question is how we exploit that technology properly uh, on the NHS and also how we answer some of the deeper questions for society uh, that genomics raises. Because it does seem to me that the technology and the science has raced on far faster, really, than we can cope with it. Who do you think are the most important people to get across the, the stage of progress where we are and understanding these ideas and, and talking about them? Because this is happening now. So I think there are uh, at least three key audiences that really need to understand this better. The first one is policymakers, so people within government who will be taking decisions over the coming two, three, four years about how we fit up uh, the NHS in particular to take uh, uh, proper advantage of these uh, technologies. Uh, at the moment, I think understanding is improving and there's certainly a great deal of enthusiasm. But it's important that that enthusiasm uh, is matched by realism as to what genomic medicine uh, can but also can't uh, mm. deliver and that uh, we don't end up with expectations raised too high only for them to be Dash. That's the first audience. Uh, the second audience uh, is actually the medical profession, where beyond uh, certain specialist kinds of doctors who have always been very well versed in, in genetics, the clinical geneticists, the, the oncologists, I think something that will happen increasingly is that genomics becomes embedded in the practice of medicine throughout uh, the clinical care pathway. And even those going through medical school right at the moment uh, are not really taught uh, in, a, in a systematic way uh, about how uh, complex genomics might influence things such as drug prescribing, uh, some of the options that might be available for, for, for cancer patients, uh, rare disease, infectious disease. And I guess then the final group is the public. Oh, well, that's right. And, and I think it's very important here that we try to achieve uh, the communication of genomics in a, in, in a more realistic way. Uh, the way in which genomics and genetics are often covered uh, seems to suggest that uh, 
they're deterministic sciences. We read a lot about genes for being fat, genes for being tall, genes for getting cancer. Uh, it's actually very rare that genes work in a deterministic way like that. There are one or two conditions. Huntington's disease would be the, uh, the prime famous example where there is a one-to-one relationship between inheriting a certain mutation and getting a certain disease. But actually that's not how genetic risk works more normally. More normally there'll be uh, tens, hundreds, even thousands uh, of genes working in concert with a person's environment to raise or lower their risk of, uh, of, of often a large number of different diseases. And uh, I think that as soon as you start to think of genetics like that, uh, it actually starts to become a little bit less scary uh, that your genetic code is a very important factor in your health and well-being, but it's only one factor. It certainly doesn't mean that your diet is unimportant, how much exercise you take is unimportant. Other lifestyle and environmental factors uh, work together with the genome uh, to form outcomes, uh, not uh, uh, in isolation from. And and, and your genome very rarely determines uh, either who you are or, uh, um, or what diseases you have. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Katarni. Still to come, we'll be discovering whether it's possible to analyse dinosaur DNA and taking an Antarctic trek with our gene of the month. But now it's time to take a closer look at the twisted world of DNA. Inside our cells, our DNA is wrapped around ball-like packing proteins called histones, forming something known as chromatin. But what does chromatin look like and why doesn't our DNA get all tangled up? Dr Nick Gilbert, also at the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh, is trying to find out. If you were to isolate chromatin from cells and unfold it and look at it under a microscope, a very high-powered microscope like an electron microscope, what you would find is that it looks like sort of beads on a string-like structure. But if you then fold up this chromatin into what you'd normally expect in a cell, it has a sort of a much more folded appearance and it sort of is thickened out and we actually call it something called a 30 nanometer fibre. It's not a very imaginative name, but that's sort of the dimension you see under the microscope. It strikes me as an incredible feat of packing. You've got these long, long strings, you, you wrap them around beads, you coil them up and coil them up and coil them up, coil them up, and shove them all into the nucleus. How does it not get twisted up? How, how does it not end up as just a massive mess? Now, that's a very interesting question, and it's something that is very important for the cell to avoid. And the cell has some fairly complicated enzymes which are actually responsible for removing a twist that's actually introduced into the DNA. And a lot of these enzymes are topisomerases, so these are enzymes that can chop the DNA like a molecular pair of scissors, uh, remove some of the twists and then stick it back together again. There's also another class of enzymes called helicases and these helicases are like little molecular motors that can twist the DNA and interestingly there are a couple of human genetic diseases where there are mutations in some of these helicase proteins and these are very very rare genetic diseases for example Bloom syndrome and Werner syndrome and in these patients uh, the little helicases don't work properly and then there are problems with packaging the genome. So how do these these helicases and these topoisomerases how do they work out 
where they need to go and, and what they need to be doing. How do, are they, do we know how they sense whether DNA is too twisted or, or not twisted enough? So that's something we really don't have much of an idea about. So we did a study recently where we did some experiments on topoisomerases, and one of the things we concluded from these experiments is that these enzymes must have the ability to sense twist, but we've got no idea as to what that mechanism is, whether they're actually recognising a change in structure in the DNA or if there are other sensing proteins that can signal to the topoisomerases that they need to be active in different parts of the genome. What we did find, though, is that there are, in mammalian cells, there are two main classes of topoisomerases, and from our experiments, they appear to have different distributions in the genome, implying that they might have different functions in different regions. But that's at really a very broad scale, and we need to do more experiments to actually understand how these enzymes detect changes in twist. It's an amazing image to, to think about, that you've got these, these little beads of protein being shuffled about DNA, you've got little machines pushing them around, you've got things untwisting DNA, twisting it back up. It's a very dynamic idea of what's going on in the nucleus of a cell. Well, I think historically people have thought of chromatin as a very um, static structure, but this is probably a reflection of the techniques that people have used. Historically, people have used microscopy to look at a lot of these processes, but microscopy is uh, used on samples that are being fixed, so they're sort of static samples. They're dead stuff, basically. Essentially. But what we have found now is that using a lot of new techniques, that actually a lot of the proteins in the cell, as you say, are very, very dynamic. And we need to think of uh, the organisation of DNA and its packaging in the cell as a very dynamic process that's constantly responding to, for example, gene transcription or DNA replication or just other external stimuli from outside that the cell needs to respond to so it can express certain genes. So it's very important for us to develop new techniques to actually look at these dynamic processes as they're actually occurring in living cells. So tell me a bit about the work that you're doing. How are you trying to to unravel this complicated problem? So my lab is really interested in looking at the structure of DNA and how DNA is then folded into the sort of fundamental chromatin fibres. So we've spent quite a lot of time looking at the structure of these chromatin fibres in cells using a combination of sort of biophysical techniques and very high-resolution imaging. And what we find is that in different parts of the genome, these chromatin fibres have slightly different structures. What we've been doing recently, which is very interesting, is to actually look at the structure of DNA in cells. And there's really so much still we don't know about it. For example, you know, we know the structure of DNA in a, in a test tube on the lab bench, but we don't really have an idea of the structure of DNA actually inside the cells. So what my lab has been doing over the last few years is try and develop new techniques for analysing the structure of the DNA whilst it's still in the cell. And we've recently developed a new sort of molecular probe that can distinguish between DNA that has a very twisted structure and DNA that has a less twisted structure. And we are able to show that the genome is actually organised into large domains of twist and I think this is something really very interesting that we're going to carry on studying. 
You mentioned earlier that there are some human diseases where there are problems with, with the helicases that twist up DNA and the topoisomerases that untangle them. Do you think that DNA twisting could be important in some other human diseases? Yes, I think absolutely. For example, in diseases like cancer, you find that topoisomerase enzymes are often upregulated. And what we imagine is that this might have an effect on the DNA structure so that maybe the chromatin is not packaged properly and it enables other genes to be misregulated. And cancer really is a disease of a gene misregulation. And if you start messing around with the proteins that are responsible for packaging the genome properly, then chances are then genes will be expressed at the wrong time and in the wrong cell type. And that really could be a very important initial cause in cancer and might also be important in actually in the evolution of diseases like cancer. That was Dr Nick Gilbert from the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh. Now it's time to look at your burning genetics questions with the help of naked scientist Martha Enriquez. This month, listener Steve Cherry from Lethbridge, Alberta in Canada wanted to know how researchers extract dinosaur DNA from fossils and separate it from contaminant DNA from other organisms. Firstly, the bad news is that no one has yet successfully isolated DNA from dinosaur fossils. Dr Gregor Larson from Durham University told me how DNA is isolated from fresh biological specimens and why doing the same for ancient specimens like dinosaur remnants is so difficult. The way that we usually do it is to simply remove everything that isn't DNA, filter it off, and that leaves us with a small tube that only has the DNA left in it. Of course, DNA exists in every single living organism, so we can't discriminate between all the different possible sources of DNA. All we can do is isolate DNA from everything that's non-DNA. And once we've got that in a tube, then we can start to do all kinds of things with it, including sequencing it or going after specific markers or amplifying specific places. But the act of isolating it is a relatively straightforward process, and we can do it from any number of things, including skin cells or feathers or bone or teeth or anything that's biological and that is alive or was recently alive, we can isolate DNA from. But when it comes to ancient specimens like dinosaur fossils, the chance of success with this method becomes vanishingly small. As soon as something dies, everything about that thing starts to degrade. So the analogy would be the bowl of fruit that you probably have in your kitchen. And if you were just to leave that bowl of fruit there uh, for a day or two, it'll be fine. But if you leave it there for a month, it'll probably be no longer something that's even remotely appetizing. And if you leave it there for a year, it would be hard to differentiate the different kinds of fruit you had in that bowl uh, a year before. And if you leave it there for 20 years, there probably won't be anything even remotely resembling fruit in there. So, And DNA is no different. The longer that an organism is dead, the more that that DNA degrades. And it degrades at a rate which is dependent upon lots of different factors, including how long it's been, what temperature it's, uh, been, it's being stored at, or what sort of other organisms are eating it, or any number of other things. But even in the best-case scenario, where you have something frozen, say, in the tundra, where it's very cold, the half-life of DNA is somewhere on the order of maybe 100 or 200,000 years, which means half of the amount of DNA that you start with will be gone after about 100 or 200,000 years. So... The reason it's difficult to get DNA out of dinosaur bones is simply because there is no DNA left. The same reason that if you were to leave that bowl of fruit on your 
kitchen table for 65 million years, the chances of you being able to come back and get any fruit out of that would be virtually, well, is nil. So any reports that there's been of dinosaur DNA, are they're not reporting dinosaur DNA, they're reporting other bits of DNA that they've isolated that don't have anything whatsoever to do with that dinosaur bone. This contaminant DNA is a problem for all work on ancient biological specimens. Dr. Mim Bowers of Cambridge University works on isolating DNA from prehistoric horse remains preserved in icy environments. These well-preserved specimens are much younger than dinosaur fossils and still have some of their original DNA present. Dr. Bowers described how she distinguishes any contaminant DNA from the horse DNA that she's interested in. So for every sample of bone that we try to extract DNA out of, we also examine a number of controls. So each time I do a DNA extraction, I work with a set number, six control reactions, which have exactly the same components in, except for the bone particle. And that helps me control whether there is any DNA coming from me or from the environment or from the reagents that I'm using. Because if I see a positive DNA peak in my control samples, which should have nothing in them, then I know that I have made an error somewhere and I go back and I start again and I clean everything down. So we have a very strict contamination protocol nowadays and I have to say that most DNA researchers who are experienced can work very cleanly. And when we don't work cleanly, we can immediately see where we've gone wrong and put it right. That was Gregor Larson from Durham University and Mim Bowers from Cambridge University. If you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com, tweet us at Naked Genetics or post on the Naked Scientist Facebook page. And finally, our gene of the month is the adventurous Scott of the Antarctic, which was first discovered in fruit flies back in 1996. It was named because the protein encoded by the gene was originally thought to be involved in forming a cellular scaffold called the spindle, which helps separate chromosomes as they divide by pulling them to each pole of the cell by means of structures called centrosomes. In Scott of the Antarctic mutant fly embryos, the centrosome of one cellular pole becomes detached and doesn't work properly, in a not-very-good analogy of the doomed South Pole expedition by Scott and his team in 1912. It now turns out that Robert Scott's namesake gene is actually an overactive version of another gene called Great Wall, which is important for helping cells to divide, as well as helping to coil up DNA in preparation for division. Not such an evocative name, though. That's all for now. Next month I'll be reporting back from the Genetic Society Spring Meeting, finding out how advances in gene technology could help our health and what it might mean for society. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Don't forget, every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.